Aloha, everybody. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. And this podcast is everything I'd hope this podcast would be. We have our first celebrity guest, Michael Seibel, one of my favorite directors. I really admire the man. He directed The Ultimate Gift. He's a screenwriter. He's a visual effects expert. He's a director. And he has a new film out, Wraith, that he's going to talk to us about. And this show... He gets really personal and he really opens up. You need to listen to the entire show. If you get home before it's over, listen to it on the way to work tomorrow. And I need to tell you, I don't need to tell you, I want to tell you. This episode is brought to you by Movie to Movement. Movie to Movement exists to promote a culture of life, love, and beauty through film. Sign up at movie2movement.com to be a theater captain and make sure that you get every beautiful film in your local theater. Sit back. Here we go. Michael Seibel, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. And don't forget it. Yeah, Jason, hey, glad to be on. Hey, brother, I'm glad to have you on. I want you to know you are my second interview, but the first interview was with a lawyer, so that doesn't really count. You And you are my first celebrity guest. I'm, I'm honored and privileged and uh, a bit stunned. Do you know, it's going to be, you know, somebody was the first guest on the Johnny Carson show and they got to tell people I was the first guest on Johnny Carson. Maybe not likely, but maybe one day you will be able to brag that you were the first celebrity guest on the Jason Jones show. Well, I'm going to get things printed up right now saying that. (laughs) And the only reason you're on my show is because you have a movie and that's how these, you know, that's how it works. You big shots to our shows because you have something to sell to folks. But you see You've seen the movie, and I think you like it. I lo- not only do I like it, I want to. I love it. At Wraith the movie, and we'll get into this incredible movie, beautiful movie, especially as a filmmaker. And I, I want to, as a filmmaker, I want to get into all the things that are so special about your filmmaking, Wraith in particular. Um, but before that, I just want to, I want to interview you because you're my first celebrity guest, and I have to say you're one of the first celebrity experiences I ever had in my life. And I want to tell the people how we, we met through the, um, the producer, the great producer, Steve McAvity. Um, and what project was that when I first met you? Well, the, my recollection is that we were both at the Beverly Hilton hotel in Beverly Hills, which is a great place to meet. Right. And, uh, we were all getting awards. You were getting awards for Bella, and I was getting awards for one of my films, either uh, One Night with the King, uh, with Omar Sharif and Peter O'Toole, or it could have been um, The Ultimate Gift with uh, James Garner. Uh, one of those, and, and so you were up on stage with all of these wonderful Hispanic producers and director, and and they were all about you know, five foot two, and there you uh, said, I'm just this big guy with them. And I live in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And of course, I'm based in Wisconsin as well. So I, I came up to you afterwards and we been, became fast friends and we had no idea how much we really had in common. And yeah, we both know Steve McAvity, the producer of uh, Passion of the Christ and Braveheart and um, other people that are, are in our within our circle. Yeah, but well, when I met you, it stands out to me about when I first met you is you really are, you were, and you are my stereotype of Hollywood. You are just this, and I don't know what most people think of Hollywood, but I guess growing up as a young man watching Johnny Carson and the guys sitting around his desk talking and laughing, you know, you have this just a very, um, 
magnanimous personality. You're very genteel and very, to me, you know, Beverly Hills, Orange County. But then when I when I got to know you, A, you share my values. And then when I got to know the film business, I'm like, how do people that work in this business carry themselves in such a carefree, happy way? Because I'm becoming very bitter and angry. So that's my question. How do guys like you, I think of you and I think of John Shepard uh, as two just great examples. You're always smiling. You're always you seem to be in a state of peace when our industry is a lot like landing at Nor- on, on Normandy oftentimes, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, I, I have felt even at times that I had PTSD, but that with the guys who really have that, who were in, you know, the Middle East, Afghanistan, uh, you know, uh, Iraq, those guys really have it. And I just had a very occasionally have a small version of that. But it's it there's there's a you got to get you got to transcend that and since you mentioned John Shepard I'll tell you a quick story we were uh, we produced and wrote and I directed most of the Billy Graham movies in the nineties and uh, they they were shown in churches and theaters and all that and we were being interviewed up in Vancouver on a film and they said you guys and all the stuff you just said you guys are at peace you're calm you're smiling. I mean, do you suffer from any anxiety or a nervousness or anything like that? And we both looked at each other and said, no. And I said, oh, but at night when I go to sleep, I have to wear all kinds of mouth guards. Otherwise, I would grind my teeth to nothing. So I guess I do have a bit of all of what you mentioned, but it's channeled through my sleep (laughs) and my nightmares. (laughs) You're one of those charitable guys that you internalize it, but to the world, you just, you show that, Hey, it's, it's a, and that's what you need in a director, isn't it? And look, I, I was an infantryman and I don't in any way. And, and my father and my son and my brother were all, my dad wasn't in Iraq. He was in Vietnam era infantryman. My, my son was just got back from Iraq, but as an infantryman, I will, I do have to say the, I'm glad I was an infantryman because it prepared me it prepared me for the film it prepared me for the film business and and so yeah i always look to you and john shepherd as my role models it's just breathe in and breathe out and um what so you started you went to ucla is that where you in in, in for film school yeah um the undergraduate program there started in your junior year so i did a couple of years at the university of wisconsin an extension there and I uh, got frustrated there. I, I I sort of burned out the film program. I did everything they had to offer, and I wasn't going to just sit around another two years. So when I found out that UCLA started in the junior year, it was a natural transition. And um, I actually put down on my application that I wanted to make faith-based films. I wanted to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And I was one out of 19 out-of-state students accepted. So I... I really, um, I felt it was God's will, if you will. So I, I, I went to UCLA. I got um, a very high marks. I graduated summa cum laude. But then I found out also that when you get out, you're really on your own. There's no placement center. There's no um, uh, job help, that type of yeah. thing. And some of the pros in the business, they're struggling on their own just to maintain their status quo. So there wasn't a lot of mentorship and apprenticeship and things like that. So um, now there is, now there are more of those opportunities. And we always have a number of young people on, on my films and others that we, uh, I like, we, uh, 
My, Michael, I like how you sort of expressed empathy there for, for the folks that you, you know, you think everyone around you is having success and you're like, why don't they pull me in the boat? But then you realize we're all in the ocean struggling to stay afloat ourselves. And, and, um, so did you understand that as a filmmaker or were you as a young right out of, of school or were you like, why doesn't someone send me a lifeline? Or did you figure it out over the years that nobody really has a lifeline to throw you? Uh, it's mostly nobody has a lifeline to throw you. I mean, early on, some people that I was uh, living with in Culver City, they knew one guy in the film business and they thought, well, let's hook Michael up with this guy. Turns out that he was the art director on all of the Cecil B. DeMille films and, you know, the Ten Commandments and the uh, the Greatest Show on Earth and C- uh, S- Samson and Delilah. His name was Walter Tyler. And uh, he took me on a couple of family trips where I was able to just absorb his calmness and his professionalism and um, his his Christian walk, you know, his spirit. And uh, so I had that going for me, but it was few and far between. And uh but, you know, as you get into the business, you run into similarly minded people and people who are going through the same struggle. And ultimately, a guy said, hey, you got to meet this guy that does the Billy Graham movies. And it was John Shepard. And, and John was just starting out as well as uh, well, he was an actor for a while and ended up uh, becoming a producer and a writer. And uh we were connected and we were off to the races then. So yeah, you, you got to partner with people. You've got to uh, pick and choose your, your friends and your associates carefully. And you certainly want them to be like-minded and uh, to a degree you want to uh, as well challenge each other. And, um, uh, but, but really uh, you're, uh, you're on your own. And I would really hate to be a non-Christian in the film business. I think that's why there's so much, um, uh, you know, uh, addiction and uh, perversion and alternate everything uh, is everybody needs, you know, uh, kind of that uh, an escape of sorts. And if you don't have God, I don't know what you have. No, you, you know, and I'm, you know, something you said early on is you put on your application, you wanted to use film to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. The, you never tried to slink into the film business. I, you know, you never hid who you were. Uh, you can't. Uh, now, it's a little different politically. I stay very politically neutral because I don't want to immediately disenfranchise half my audience. And, uh, you know, uh, right now people are outraged over Trump and, uh, and a certain segment of the population. And then, you know, for eight years, people were outraged over Obama and, and it just waxes and wanes. And I uh, so I'm always up front where I am as a believer in uh, in 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 Jesus Christ, and I'm a Catholic, and my family, and all of these other things. But when it comes to politics, I really do have to, uh, you know, hold in some of my thoughts. But that would be the same in any industry, right? If you worked at Home Depot in the paint department, you don't want to come in you know, knowing that half the people are on one side and half the people are on the other and introduce that into your work conversation, right? Well, it, it, you know, I really don't care what the beliefs are of the guy who's mixing my paint as much as when you make a movie, who you are comes out in the movie. And 
I was working on a Disney movie a few years ago just as a cameraman, and the director was a complete jerk. The script was beautiful. It was incredibly written. And I'm going, now how can a jerk like this produce such a beautiful work of art and tender and all of this? And guess what? The film came out. It failed because the director's personality came through. And so when you're hiring someone to direct a movie or you're working with other artists along the way in the very collaborative business, you really have to have, you know, some like-mindedness in order to not at least be sabotaged along the way. Um, People below a certain level in the movie business are, you know, the people who actually, the crew, the sound people, all that, they can be whatever they want. And, uh, they, you know, and, and I don't have a litmus test for who I hire, you know, to work with there. But if I was a money person or a studio and I was hiring someone, uh, it really does depend on the worldview of the person making the movie. No, no, I agree with that. In fact, I tell young filmmakers that I, I've never, I never hid who I was. I kind of came in through the side door. And that's one of the things I think that's great about the entertainment business in Hollywood is, you know, I've had Uber drivers with degrees from NYU and um, they've never had the opportunity to produce a film in their life. And they've been in they've been in town for 20 years. I kind of trip in through the side door and I've had the privilege of, you know, work producing over 10 films, working on over 50. And um, so it is it is sort of the wild, wild west that way. But, yeah, you want someone to. Who shares your worldview? But that being said, if you hide who you are, I get so many young Christians who tell me they're going to go to Hollywood. They're not going to share their faith. They're going to keep quiet. And then once they have success, then they're going to use their celebrity to change the world. And I'm like, brother, you're never going to have any success. Because first of all, they don't care that you're a Christian, but you're going to smell fishy to them. You can't hide a big part of who you are and think people are going to like you. They may not know why they don't like you, but they're going to just feel that you're disingenuous. Where I have found by being very outspoken, by being very open about my faith, I make friends like you, friends like Steve, influential people, friends below the line. I have so many friends that are great construction coordinators and art directors, and we were able to connect because of our faith and because of who we are as uh, people. We know one of my most beautiful experiences in my life is the time we got to go golfing together. Now I'm not a golfer, but what was the name of that golf course? The bridges. And that's a fame. That's like a big golf course, right? Uh, It's it's ultra wealthy members. And uh, I just found out, I just golfed there again a couple of weeks ago and it's about, uh, it's about, a hundred thousand dollars to join, but it's also twenty five hundred dollars a month. So you're going to be kicking in thirty grand a year just to be a member, and it's manicured and it's colorful and yeah. I, Jason, that was one of my great times. And you waited at at LAX, the airport in LA, for hours because my plane was late. And then we wide eyed. We tried to make it down to San Diego and spent the night. And you were really a uh, a great, a, a newfound friend at that time. Oh no, it was a privilege. I'm going to, I'm going to let the people of the world know. And by the way, Michael, this podcast only four weeks old, but I just saw a list today. I saw a list this morning that the Jason Jones show on, um, was number three. It was the Bible, 
the Aeneid, and then the Jason Jones show on the list of the three biggest influences on the course of Western civilization. And we are only four weeks old. And uh, I wrote the list myself, put it on my refrigerator and saw it. But we have listeners in just four weeks in over half the countries in the world in all 50 states. So um, so I want to tell the people of the world the story. Um, somebody, God knows why, paid $10,000 to golf with Jason Jones at the Bridges. That probably had more to do with golfing at the Bridges than Jason Jones. So I had never golfed in my life. And I, I begged them, please don't put me in this auction uh, as a golf partner. I don't even know how to caddy. And so I, I was panicked to find a celebrity that they could golf with. And um, I don't know how somebody, how did I know you were a super golfer? I don't know. Somebody told me, I think maybe it was John uh, Shepard. I think it was and because, you, yeah. And you hopped, you hopped on a plane all the way from Wisconsin, right? You were coming from Appleton? Yeah, this is a very famous golf course. And plus, I wanted to hang out with you and I, and I didn't have to pay 10 grand. And so I had some frequent flyer miles and uh, uh, came out there. And I also have a place still in, in L.A., uh, a home base there. So it, it, uh, it worked out. It was beautiful. And I just got to watch you golf with this beautiful family and wonderful family. And, I, and at the time, I thought... What a privilege. What a life. A young man like me who was a father at 18, high school dropout, you know, is on this beautiful golf course with this one of my favorite directors watching him golf with this beautiful family. There were be- there were birds. It was just it was just I thought I don't, I don't I'll never be a golfer, but I like just to walk around these golf courses. Can I do that? Can they just can I walk around for free? Will they get mad at me because they because they were so, so, so beautiful. Um, but that that was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. Now, I want to talk to you about something. Um, I took this master class. You know, you're going to laugh at me, but because I tripped into film from, I mean, I was an infantryman. I, I worked on political campaigns and then I fell into film. Then I worked on film for 10 years before I ever picked up a book on filmmaking. And um, so I have, a you know, now I have my bookshelves look like I'm a, a senior at NYU myself, but I also, but I also love masterclass, this, this masterclass.com. And I, I took David Mamet's masterclass on writing. Yeah. And he had a beautiful allegory or analogy. I don't know which, what, what it is. He, he said, um, beavers chew wood because their teeth chew on trees because their teeth itch. And it's the only thing that stops their teeth from itching. Writers write because their teeth itch, and it's the only thing that stops their teeth from itching. Like as a director, you come from visual effects. What is it that makes your teeth itch? What is it that pushes you? You know, the average film takes 13 years from concept to screen, seven years from script to screen. What is itching in you to jump into this process? You know, 60% of producers are first and last time producers, but you have done this time and time and time and time again, this long process. Uh, Alejandro Monteverdi says every film dies three times. Maybe we can talk about that later. What is it that pushes you through this death and resurrection, death and resurrection, long journey, time and time and time again? What is it that's itching in you to tell these stories? Wow, what a great question! I I gotta somehow answer aspects of that, and I can I can only say that 
uh, to, to, from the beginning, uh, I grew up in a small town in, in Wisconsin, Wausau, which has that insurance company that did the commercials for 60 minutes. And they were a, a really, a, a very small Midwestern town, maybe 20,000 people. And, uh, there are two movie theaters and I, I would go to the movie theaters, uh, sometimes just with my friends as an escape and, and one, and in playing at the time was, uh, David Lean's movie, Dr. Zhivago. And, uh, it was his follow-up to Lawrence of Arabia. It was an epic. And I didn't realize all the political nuances of the film, that it was the Russian revolution and there were idealists on both sides. And, and I just saw, uh, Omar Sharif with Julie Christie and, 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 uh, you know, Geraldine Chaplin and, and, and the, um, the beautiful panorama of that movie and something about it arrested me. I just, I went back again and again. And finally the manager of the theater would say, Oh, it's, Oh, it's you again. Come on in. And I would sit there transfixed, uh, the soundtrack, the cinematography, the direction, the editing, everything, Rod Steiger. Uh, well then I saw on TV within a few months, the making of Dr. Zhivago. And I said, Oh my gosh, there's a camera, there's lights, there's technicians, and there's this director named David Lean. I said, that's exactly what I want to do. And that was 14 years old. And I knew at that moment that that was what I was going to do in my life. So, and, so David Lean was that the first director that inspired you? I would say by default, yeah. Um, and uh, there have been many others since then, foreign and domestic. But I just felt that that uh, was my calling. Now, the uh, you say, if you look at like a quarterback, uh, they have a career, unless they're amazing, like, say, Aaron Rodgers, um, to bring in our Packers-Bears rivalry a little bit. He might have a career now that's going to last 20, uh, 30 years. Uh, and some of these guys do play into their early 40s. Um, but most football players have an average span of, a, of X number of years. And you were very good with statistics of how many people produce one movie only, how many people you know do, do this, how long it takes to do a movie. All of that's amazing statistics. And I bet the general public's not aware of that. They just think that we are all out in a line in Hollywood. Oh, it's your turn. Here's the money. Go make a movie. <laughs> you know. And uh, so what with me, I've had, I would say three careers now, and I think I'm on my fourth. So my first career was as a writer. I picked up the phone as a college student at UCLA. I called the studios. I said, hey, read my scripts, da-da-da. And I caught the right people. And they never produced any of my movies, but they hired me to do rewrites on some of their movies. So that was my first career. Then I met a guy, a crazy cameraman. We became partners. And we started a special effects company by default. I mean, just because the, we knew people in the studios who needed these shots. And that was a, I think, a 16, 17, 18 year career, with, with, which was very profitable. And we worked on over almost 50 movies like you and doing explosions and you name it. The Hunt for Red October, Broken Arrow, Hot Shots, Speed, Money Train, uh, you name it. Worked on all those. And then the next iteration was finding my way into faith-based filmmaking where I could be a little more creative within the confines of say 
someone like um, Worldwide Pictures and Billy Graham, they have a set of rules you have to follow. And of course, they're very evangelical. And if you don't want to do it that by their, you know, what they want, you're going to hit the road pretty soon. And then now I'm into where I'm producing my own films and directing them. Um, I'm even working with a couple of guys to try to get a film fund going out of Wall Street uh, where I don't have to ask for mo- money for two years before I do every movie. I mean, that's that's part of the slog, you know, is getting the funding. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a major part. I mean, great filmmakers like Orson Welles uh, spent half his life, if not more, looking for money instead of making movies. So my goal is to continue to do this as long as I'm able. I've got a ton of energy. I figure like I'm at the midpoint of my career. I've got a lot of great projects. Uh, most of them are faith-based, if not all. And uh, that's my tra- trajectory. So would you say your, 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 your teeth itching is just this desire to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to as many people as possible through film? Well, everybody has a calling or whatever. If, if you're uh, a janitor, a plumber, uh, you know, uh, but but some of us have, uh, I don't want to call it a higher caller calling because that sounds almost arrogant, but you like your, your calling is to end abortion. And my calling is, is, is to share faith through film uh, as opposed to theater, commercials, novels, whatever. And, and it's just I'm that tool in God's arsenal to fight, you know, the good fight. And uh, I so my teeth itch by uh, my dad was an architect. My uncle was the head of the art department at a at a university in Colorado. Um, most of my brothers are scientists, but I have the artistic bug. And so my itch is I've got to create images i've got to create story performances uh and orchestrate all the elements that go into making a movie to make it effective and to make it powerful i want you to share with us um maybe your films have influenced so many people in fact i get angry at you all the time because i ask people what their favorite movie is that when i meet somebody that's in our tribe and i I say hey what's your favorite movie and I'm hoping they say Bella. And so often yeah. they'll say, oh, the ultimate oh, the gift. Ultimate Have you gift. seen the ultimate gift? I'm like, you think it's better than Bella? Oh, I like Bella. The ultimate gift is my favorite movie. So I don't know if you have any stories about the ultimate gift or other films you've worked on where somebody wrote you a letter or you bump into them at the, you know, at the airport or um, any well, stories you can share with us that are personal. I love this one. You, of course, we've mentioned in this podcast, uh, Steve McAvity, who's a very devout man. He's very talented. Uh, he has produced Braveheart. He's produced The Passion of the Christ. And I mean, these are magnificent movies. They're epics. They made f- a fortune. They've influenced generations and all that. And John Shepard tells me that people come up to them all the time at conferences and in the studio, whatever. And they say to Steve, I love that movie you made. I mean, with James Garner and that girl, Abigail Breslin and Brian Dennehy, uh, The Ultimate Gift. And Steve goes, I didn't do that one. But John (laughs) Shepard, but John Shepard produced The Ultimate Gift. And John, you know, we all talk about what really defines a producer. And John is a full on producer. He's not only, you know, 
can handle the finances and negotiations and things like that. He's immensely creative and he has a keen sense of story and he'll read the script and he'll read it again. And every day I get notes from him. Oh no, he's not done yet. And then he'll bring in somebody (laughs) like David. Then he'll bring in somebody like David McFadzian, right? And David will have a bunch of notes and David is like a story God with a small G. I mean, he can, lint pick your script and fine tune it and so i have uh you know that so anyway that's my story is that a lot of people are are credited with the ultimate gift and uh there are other producers on that film who each performed incredible things and of course they had faith in me to begin with and i uh the one thing about the ultimate gift that i think i like the most is that I had artistic and creative freedom on that film. And um, I don't mind a bunch of producers looking at monitors and giving you some notes after they see a scene taking shape and all that. Uh, But I I really had an amazing amount of freedom to do what I wanted, and uh, including casting. And uh, everybody supported my vision, uh, and it became their vision. So, yeah. Yeah, I often, well, that, that's beautiful to hear. I often feel for directors when you see how hemmed in they can be and you know they're, it's their name that's on the line and they may have very little say at the end of the final product. Um, yeah. And they have, so it's good when you have um, that freedom. You know, you work, now you worked with Steve on Hot Shots. I mean, do you remember working with him in 1991 on that project? Was he line producer or I don't know what he was on Hot Shots? I, rem- I remember Steve very specifically. I was the cameraman for my company, but when they came time to do pickup shots, and I think it was, I, I forget, I think it was Hot Shots Part Two, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I know they're funny, funny movies. Steve was the first assistant director and I was a DP that was brought in to do pickup shots. And Steve and I worked together for a week or more. And uh, I just remember him as a really competent, uh, really personable, but efficient and, um, you know, professional. I mean, that's the highest compliment you can pay to anybody in the movie business is if they're professional, they know what they're doing and they do it well. And, um, Steve was that. And then years later, when we reunited, you might say, uh, I reminded Steve that we worked together. (laughs) So I don't know if I made that big of an impression on him, but I, I was professional as well. Well, you know, it's funny. You said you had to remind him that you worked together. Whenever I see anybody that I worked with on a project on television or a movie, I, I, I hit I hit my wife, I elbow my wife and say, hey, you know, that's 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 my really good friend right there. You know, Will Smith. And then I'll, and I'll go into some long convoluted story about what good friends we are. And of course, they never <laughs> met me or know me. But if I'm in, at all involved in a project with somebody for the rest of my life, when they appear on our screen, I have to I harangue my wife with stories of our close fr- our close friendship. Um, I want to get to the Wraith. But before we do that, I know that every filmmaker is haunted by their 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 their, their one that one film that they feel that one story that they know they have to tell. And it's always the hardest story to tell. It's the most challenging film to get made. Uh, what is that story for you? Jason, what a great question. And, uh, you know, you just hope through one of these podcasts, there's somebody sitting out there with a, just a fat checkbook. Do you know, that's that, why you know, I asked the question. hundred yeah, percent. That's just, why I asked you the question. It's just, it's just so fat. It's dripping with interest <laughs> charges. And yeah. Um, 
I have two actually, and uh, they're both um, based on personal wonderful experiences. And I mean, they're not biographical in 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 that sense. But one is that remember when Paul walked into um, the uh, a certain city? I don't know if it was Greece or Italy or whatever, and it was it was a marketplace of ideas and there were Epicureans and there were this and that. And they were, they were talking about a statue to an unknown God, but it talks about that city of having many, many, um, shall we say, uh, beliefs and all of that. Well, that all happened again in Madison, Wisconsin in the late sixties, early seventies, you had radicals, you had conservatives, you had Jesus freaks, you had, Every single idea in the world clashed in that moment, and it culminated with some radicals blowing up a building, and uh, lives were changed. And it really is a, uh, a a tale of the times. And I I want to either tell that in a in a kind of a semi fictional sense, or or, you know, kind of my, it's my Dr. Zhivago is what it is. It's, it's David Lean took the Russian revolution from 2017. I'm taking the Madison revolution. And so that's one of them. And the other one is a uh, very allegorical. Uh, it is a muscle car movie. Uh, I'm a little frustrated, but on the other hand, very happy that the fast and the furious franchise did so well, because this is that, on, uh, uh, but but with a spiritual level as well. But it's muscle cars. It's an escaped hooker from Las Vegas. It's action. It's noise. It's everything that the major movie going audience. The demographic is m- boys and men from like fifteen through twenty four. They're the main audience for movies. This is it. This is that movie. And um, so, yeah, and it's, and it's, it's, of course, laced with spirituality. So those are my two films that I, I have to make before I die. And if I don't make them before I die, I guess I'll make them in heaven. Well, you know, and, there's, and there then, is a guy that I know listens to this podcast who is a graduate of Madison during that era who invests in movies. You know who you are. That's all I'm going to say. You know who you wow. are, you know, and, and he, I think I think you may know him, Michael. He's a good man. Um, now, the Fast yeah. and the Furious one is that to inspire uh, thoughtfulness to women? Is that sort of a theology of the body movie, or what's the sort of the, the hope in that? I'm trying to figure out what you meant by that. Uh, it it is uh, it's that we're all ultimately orphans. We're here. We're in a uh, we're in a in a um, how do you call it? Uh, all the movies of the late sixties, early seventies were kind of like not only were they transcendental and they were they were like poems as well, uh, like Vanishing Point and uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, Tulane Blacktop, uh, Zabriskie Point. Uh, they were they were on the cutting edge of the same kind of philosophy that I'm talking about for the Madison movie. Okay, but. Uh, and it was also America at its peak, but there was being we were being destroyed from within. And, of course, Vietnam was eating us alive. So, I mean, it was all this all of that comes together. But the, the girl uh, the, uh, I've, I've noticed with a lot of heroes in these movies that they don't touch the woman. They don't become active with the woman and a lot of those movies of that time they jumped into bed within three seconds and uh mine is more of a um uh there is a respect for women 
that is, I believe, you know, is is definitely a part of the film. But at the same time, it is how we've been influenced by the world and how our real home is, if you will, with God. And uh, so it's 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 a spiritual movie with muscle cars. Come on, it's well, great. You need, you need that. You know, when when you're talking about those movies from the '60s, I remember watching the original Ocean's Eleven with who was it? Frank Sinatra. <laughs> yeah, that, the Rat Pack. Yeah, I watched that movie, and I'm telling you, I was a feminist by the time that movie was over. And I'm like, this is where feminism comes from. Like, this is disgusting. And then yeah. it was just sort of every woman's like, "Come here, baby doll," you know. And yeah, I mean. Um, I- my uh, my kids and my wife bought me a beautiful Father's Day present one year, and that was the the Blu-ray DVD set of every James Bond movie. And uh, when when it's uh, Daniel Craig kicking butt, that's okay. But when it's Roger Moore in his sixties kissing these girls, we just kind of like cringe. I almost want to fast forward, you know, and. So I think I, I think I'm on the same wavelength as you are. Yeah, it's it's you know we look at the absurdity of the the hashtag Me Too movement and how it's gone. It's turned into really nothing but the Scarlet Letter and the witch trials. But it, this it's the pendulum swinging away from a world that was also in the other direction, very it was very disgusting. And um, yeah. hopefully this thing will settle into you know into a place of of sanity. Okay, now I want to get to your latest movie. Which I know it's modestly budgeted, but as a filmmaker who's always, and my involvement in films is really choosing the stories and chasing the money. And I'm always amazed at when you see these modestly budgeted films that are beautiful. And and it, this might sound strange, but what really is that like fingernails across a chalkboard to me is when the photography is god awful. Yeah. When the credits are, it's like a font, you know, that's just, what is this? You, what your film did is it did, it, it has beautiful lighting, beautiful photography, incredible dialogue. And people don't understand, like all these things cost money. All these things take time. Um, but your film nails it. I don't even want to say what the budget is, because maybe if I say what the budget is, people will think that you can make films like this over and over and over and over again. Um, I don't and I don't I don't really know what the budget is, but I have to say, as a filmmaker, I would just like to one day personally walk through, you know, how did you get such the, the dialogue? Uh, who, who worked with you on the dialogue? The, this, the story is is profound and um, it really is a sucker punch. Um, it keeps you on the edge of your seat. But more than that, if you're going to if you're going to make a movie, at the very least, it should be beautiful. And you nailed that. It's a beautiful film. So maybe I don't know. That's I'm just telling you how much I admire your film. Um, I don't know where you want to start. Maybe just where you got the idea for the story. And then maybe if you can quickly just walk us through how you were able to, with this budget, deliver such a beautiful film. Well, if you could um, uh, keep those two questions on the forefront, I'd like to start off with saying that um, we are, you know, a lot of discussion these days on TV and so forth is uh, immigration and all of that. But there are people evolve in different sections of the world at different times. But there have been great filmmakers to come from almost every country. And um, right now, there's a 
a, a, a triumvirate of Mexican directors that win an Academy Award every other year. You know, it's um, whether it's um, Alejandro in a Ritu or, um, you know, Guillermo del Toro or Alfonso Curran. Uh, and, and who's the fellow you work with on Bella? Yeah, Alejandro Monteverdi, who is, is my favorite director, and he always makes beautiful films. I will allow you to you have one other favorite director besides me, so that's good. So anyway, I, <laughs> I found here in Appleton, Wisconsin, a, a, a fellow who was originally born in Mexico and trained there, and his name is Antonio Mata, and Antonio is shooting commercials for like Fleet Farm and JC Penny and all that. And I found him on a music video and I, and I love his brain. He's a poet. He's a romantic. He is, he talks about light all the time. And, uh, and, and, and we just, we just hit it off and I will never not do another movie without him. He is just amazing. And he shot Wraith. Um, and the thing, um, so I want a bow to that. But there's a theater chain in Wisconsin that I was talking to early on about showing my film when it was done. And they said, Michael, we'll show your film. But and this is the lesson for anybody who grabs a digital camera. It's got to look like a Hollywood film. It's got to sound like a Hollywood film. It's, and the acting has got to be like a Hollywood film. And, you know, there are a couple of films that sneak through every now and then that are a little rough around the edges that are not up to that those standards. But uh, my goal from the very beginning was to get a very high-end digital camera, to get a very high-end cameraman, and great acting. And um, so that was my foundation uh, and, 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 and my goal was to get into the theaters. And when they saw the film, uh, in Milwaukee, the Marcus theater corporation, they said, okay, what, what do you want us to do with it? So it went from there. Um, the movie is called Wraith, which I think at least one time we should spell W R A I T H, which means a ghost or a spirit. If you're from England, there's a Rolls Royce named Wraith. And, uh, of course, you mentioned there's a Charlie Sheen movie called The Wraith, which uh, I think we're making rich because it's similar to our film. And I see on Amazon and whatever that that film sometimes is above ours because I think people are making a mistake and buying the Charlie Sheen movie. So if you buy Wraith and Charlie Sheen shows up in it, send it back and get my movie. Um, now the other questions you asked, yeah, and don't send me <laughs> nasty emails on why I would promote a film starring Charlie Sheen. <laughs> right, I worked on two Charlie Sheen films. At the time, he was very pleasant to work with. I can't comment now. No, we, no, but, we have a lot of. I have a lot of friends in common with Charlie Sheen, and then they all say that he he is a, a beautiful human being, but he's you know he struggles with. Oh, he's he's ill. Yeah, but we digress. Uh, exactly. Well, so. Once uh, I, I tried to get a three picture package going in Wisconsin with some local investors, three movies, including marketing and limited distribution, uh, at least enough to get recognized for twenty million dollars, all in twenty million dollars. And I think people around here, I just moved back from L.A. They looked at me like Harold Hill. You know, the music man, here's the guy that come to town to sell band uniforms and instruments and then leave, you know, so. 
they, that didn't go anywhere, but I developed a lot of relationships with money people in the area. And once after about three or four years, they realized I wasn't leaving. I was a member of the golf club, a member of my church, a member of the community. And, and, and once supported, we achieved supported, couple, your, supported your local pregnancy center. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so the, uh, uh, and anyway, a, a number of, uh, uh, things happened. An accountant came to me and said, well, what can we make for, and he mentioned a figure slightly south of, you know, a half a million dollars. We'll, we'll just say that. I said, well, make it a little bit more and let's see what we can do. So I started then looking for the right script, the right idea, shall we say, because I'm a writer, I'm going to write the script and I don't solicit outside scripts. I don't be sending me scripts or to use scripts, but I, there was a girl who was, shall I say safely, she's new age. Um, in fact, that might be too light of a description. Um, and she, I met her and I was telling her about what I was, uh, she was a massage therapist and I needed a massage on my lower back from um, lifting a lot of suitcases on a family vacation. And she said, well, there's a ghost in my house. And I said, well, tell me about your ghost. And she says, well, it's a girl. She's 12 years old. She's Jewish. She's over 100 years old. And she gets upset every time an animal is confined in a room or it needs to be fed. It turns TVs on and off. It does all that. And then I realized when I started writing this idea into a more of a full length that the ghost was pro-life, that the ghost wanted to preserve all the life in the house. And... I started, you know, looking at, as a writer, where can I take this story from here? And then I realized, well, what if the ghost is ultimately protecting its own life? And having seen the movie, now you kind of know where I went with that. You just, you just, uh, plot spoiler. <laughs> yeah. But that's okay. You look, people. You need you need to see this film. So are you? You're saying the ghost was wondering, "What if I'm saving my own life?" Well, no. I mean, if you follow the thread of the film, uh, first it and, I, and there may be some minor spoilers here. But first, it's upset that a dog has not been fed, and then there's something caught in the drain pipe, and then ultimately the girl who's part of the family is going home. Uh, from school one day in the rain and she, and she runs into a bad man and then the ghost has to, you know, intervene. Um, well, what I liked, and then well, can I tell you what I liked about it? It's whenever you meet an empathetic person uh, and even yeah. if it's for causes that I disagree with, if you meet a radical environmental activist, that's obsessed with like, you know, uh, making, you know, passing laws to ban, you know, the eradication of rats from your community uh, because it's harmful to animals. What you know about that person, you know, without a doubt is that they suffered a severe trauma, that they were vulnerable at one point in their life and nobody was there to protect them. And that instilled in them this, this desire to protect the weak from violence. And so here you have this wraith that has this sense of empathy for the weak, yes? Uh, you nailed it and uh, becomes part of the family almost. And uh, that's, I don't think that's giving anything away um, unless you've seen the film, of course. And, you know, it's just, you're right. It becomes the, she, the ghost. Well, all I can say is that people might 
ask, is this a horror film? And I, and I would say it's more of a supernatural or a spiritual thriller. I do bring in uh, a demonic aspect. Uh, it's kind of like Exorcist Light. I made it to be viewed by families, by kids, by, um, you know, there's nothing offensive in terms of language or nudity or, or anything like that, or even extreme violence. It's more of a cerebral uh, adventure or journey. And um, I let my 11, I, I let my I, 11 year old watch it and my 11 year old loved it. Um, and, you know, when you're young, especially you need this. You, you, you it, Praise God, I hope, you know, when you're young, you haven't experienced too much suffering or sorrow. And that's where stories come in, because then stories can instill empathy in you. Roger Ebert um, called movies an empathy generating machine. Um, there's no wow. better way to put empathy in somebody than uh, I guess you can either smack them in the face or give them a, uh, a movie. I, I'd rather have somebody hear a story that inspires empathy than, and then watch them have to actually suffer themselves. And so in that, I think this movie's right. good for junior high and, and up. Yeah. Yeah. I, and the, and the genesis of the movie was also that, my daughter, who was about 13 at the time, uh, wanted to have a bunch of kids over to our home theater to watch a scary movie for Halloween. And I said, what are you going to watch? And she told me, and I rented it like a good father. And I watched the first five minutes and I was grossed out and disgusted. And mainly it was the innuendo and then the violence. And I said, you know, well, what, what is out there for teenage, say, boys and girls that's not over the top? And, you know, you on one side, you got Disney movies like The Night on Witch Mountain or Haunted Mansion or, you know, the Harry Potter series. But on the other hand, you've got these extreme R-rated films that are really not uh, – they're not healthy in their worldview either, except for maybe The Conjuring. And The Right, uh, the, the right of, is another really good movie. Yeah, I'd have to. I haven't seen that yet. But, yeah, but it's definitely uh, not so for I, kids. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't let anyone, you know, under in my family watch it until they were eighteen. Yeah, and we're and I, I feel the same way about certain films. Like I can't wait to show my son, who's a hockey player, slap shot. But I think he's got to be like thirty or forty years old before I show him <laughs> That's that. That's right. But uh, yeah. But uh, anyway, I I wanted to fill that gap. I wanted to serve that constituency. Plus, my investors. Several of them approached me and said, Michael, there better not be any exploding heads or, you know, anything like that. And that and, and it's not like I but it goes back to my old Billy Graham days where if you want to make a movie for them, you have to follow certain sensibilities. And uh, and and you could be as creative you, as you want but within that, but you just can't exceed it. And I felt that this movie was just a challenge to get some basic ideas out there and to entertain but as well as to have a, 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 a pretty cautionary tale at the end. Well, I think you rose to the challenge. Now people can go to wraiththemovie.com. I'm very, I feel very insecure. I've been doing radio shows through movie to movement, promoting your film. And I, I feel, I can't say it right. Wraith. Can you say it for me, Michael? Wraiththemovie.com. Wraith. I think you're saying it quite well. It's, um, you yeah, have a learning Wraith. disability. Uh, go to wraiththemovie.com. Dot com. And now what if somebody wants to screen this publicly? Do, is there is there a way do they have to get a public do they, is there a public screening fee on top of um, buying the DVD or downloading it digitally? Or um, is there no public screening fee required? 
You know, that's a great question. I am really the final stop in giving any kind of permission, that type of thing. But my daughter came home the other day and said, hey, dad, they're showing Wraith at this one church. Uh-oh. <laughs> and, you know, I and and to me, I, I I look at that as a marketing screening so that Say, for instance, you show this movie at a church and everybody, you know, goes to it and they all see it and all that. But then they start talking about it and word of mouth, word of mouth, word of mouth. And and if people then buy copies or somehow seek it out in other ways, uh, I'm showing it at the public library in uh, Nina, Wisconsin, tomorrow night because they let us shoot in the library. For free, I I, I I shot in the library with full cooperation, and so it's kind of a thank you. But if I emerge with, say, people going to Amazon or iTunes and buying it, I'm ahead of the game. Praise God! All right, so I want everyone. Yeah. I want to prove to Michael how influential my audience is so we can see those sales spike. So go to wraiththemovie.com and buy it today and screen it. And use it as a promotional screening. Now, Michael, we have four questions that we ask all of our guests. And you're the first guest okay. by all of our guests. I asked Mario, my my um, my producer, we, inter- we interviewed him. And I asked him these four questions. There are four questions and an awkward opportunity. And the purpose of these four questions is really to help everyone know you. So you can't hide from us. So we can really know who you are. I might change the questions, but these are the four questions and the one awkward opportunity I came up with. The first question is, where are you from? Which you you answered. You're from Wausau, Wisconsin. And, you know, where you're from, to me, tells me a lot about somebody. So it tells me you're a Packers fan, which I already know you're my enemy. But what I know about Wausau is that it's famous for being the community that embraced the Hmong after the fall of Vietnam, correct? So did you grow up around a lot of Vietnamese and Hmong? You are totally accurate with that. I believe they were from either Laos or Cambodia, oh, but right Laos. after the fall, okay. fall and and Wausau was the very first community to dip its toe into that. And I believe it was through the Lutheran Church, if I'm not mistaken. And you invite if you invite one Hmong person to come to your town, there's like a thousand of them that come because they're all a clan, right. you know. And um, they uh, that was after. I had already left, so I was actually born in Madison. Okay. I grew up in Wa- I grew up in Wausau, and right now I'm in Appleton. Which I guess you could say, Jason, that progressively I'm moving ever closer to Green Bay. Um, but the 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 Hmong people there. Uh, there, there was a second city that embraced the Hmong, and that's Appleton, Wisconsin. So I'm running. I run into them. I run into them. Uh, there's uh, girls who want to become actors in movies, and uh, 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 I think there's still a little bit. Uh, and I'm not an expert on this. They start. They still might be a little insular. They might be their own community still, instead of like a what you'd call a full-on integration, but uh, the Hmong definitely, uh, they're among us. Well, you know how I discovered yeah. this? I was in Appleton, and I researched it because it was just, I was so curious. Alejandro Monteverdi called me and he said, you have to go see Grand Torino on opening night. It's a beautiful film about the sacrament of confession. And, and I thought, really? It's, you know, so Charlton, uh, I mean, um, uh, Clint Eastwood made a movie on the sacrament of confession. So I went to see this movie. I sit down the entire theater. It's me, uh, the, the, the radio talk show guy from green Bay, um, 
Joe Gigani and I, and yeah. we, we, yeah. we're the only two guys there that aren't Hmong. And I'm like, my first thought is the Hmong really like movies. Of course, Gran Torino stars. It's set in the Hmong community in Detroit. So that made sense why the theater was filled with, with, with Hmong. And, I, and then I went to investigate why are there so many Hmong in Wisconsin? And it really is a beautiful story how Appleton and um, Wausau really were the Wausau. first to embrace the families that were our allies in the war against totalitarian socialism in Southeast Asia. So that was my first question. Where are you from? Now, you answered my second question, maybe. What did you want to be when you grow up? You said it, you wanted to be in the film business. Was there? Did you want to be a ninja? Was there anything else you wanted to be? Or was it you from the beginning, you knew you wanted to be a director? Well, I thought briefly I took a side um, – I, I, you know, I, I did the films in high school instead of writing term papers. I, uh, uh, my cat is now crawling on the computer. If it, we go out, I'll hopefully come back on. Uh, the, uh, I briefly entertained being a psychiatrist uh, because I thought, well, maybe that's just the same sort of occupation as a director anyway. Just tell people that they're crazy and prove it to them. But, uh, you know, uh, in uh, uh, I, I pretty much stuck to filmmaking and uh, never once I became an adult and started working in the business, I never turned back. I never took a side job. I've never flipped burgers. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's movie director and writer. I love that, too. OK. And um, what do you daydream about? This is question number three. What do you daydream? I think I know, um, but what do you daydream about? Oh my gosh, I've never been asked that. I, uh, uh, well, right now, uh, Rafe uh, <laughs> is is experiencing its first fiscal quarter of distribution in um, in digital downloads, digital views. And uh, and DVDs and Blu-rays, and I have no idea how well it's going to do. So I daydream that either I can pay back my investors, or I hope I have a good cellmate at the prison if the investors sue me. You know, so that's what I daydream about. Uh, I, and golf. I'm guessing you think about golf a lot. Do you daydream about? I golf? dream about golf. I dream about golf. My wife, she can't believe that I have the reoccurring dream that I never get on the first tee. I go to golf with friends and I never get on the first tee. Is that true? That Is means, that true? Do you really have that? Yeah. Oh, it's repeating. It's whatever. Uh, it's it's um, it's like and, and I was just golfing at the a very prestigious country club in Los Angeles and uh, just before we teed off, I thought I would go use the restroom and, you know, wash my hands and everything. And there I am in the restroom and I'm going, this is exactly how the dream starts off. That door better not be locked. <laughs> Unfortunately, I went back out and I golfed. Well, that's, that's, I knew that I knew golf was in there somewhere, but I think you need to see a psychiatrist about that. I think you need to. Well, since I was going to be a psychiatrist, I could just talk to myself. You can already right? t- you, you tell yourself what that means. All right, here is I used to have an employer, and I we every week he would sit us down and say, "What were your foul balls and what were your home runs?" So I want to ask you, what was your biggest home run? If you look back at your career, what's the one time you got up to the plate and you hit that ball and you 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 like uh, Al Bundy talking about his football 
successes in high school, you you think about this, maybe brag to your friends in the bar at Appleton about this. What is that? What is that home run? I hope you're also going to ask me what my biggest failure. Uh, but the it turns out that the movie The Ultimate Gift really has resonated. I mean, the, the I shot the film in 2004, came out in 2005 or 2006. It did not do well in the theaters. And normally that's a death sentence of sorts. And then suddenly people started buying it and renting it. And in the first two months, it did over $20 million. And then... Amazing. I mean, that is amazing. That is, that's ridiculous. That's a home run. Three, three years later... It was the number one family drama at Walmart, 2009, 2010, two years running. And then I just got a residual check uh, a week ago from like some weird country somewhere. I mean, uh, it, it, I have, you know, I mean, it's, it's 10, 12 years now in the film I get. I'm down to maybe two or three compliments a week, but it used to be five to 10 a day. I it's, it's, it's insane. I was having lunch with a guy today and a local pastor and he, he couldn't stop talking about it. I think he saw it on Amazon prime or Netflix or something, but uh, it also played in the Hallmark channel forever. It was like, they called it a Christmas movie because I had a scene from Christmas, but I kind of launched the Hallmark Channel's Christmas fetish. Well, that's the type of film that people would hope to have, just one in their career, and and you already have yours. By the way, I called an audible because we, I asked about your dream film project, and there's a guy listening, so I thought, I'm going to ask you about your home run. I normally ask people the question I normally ask. That was an audible. It is. So if you want to answer it, you can. What is your biggest failure? Like, what is the biggest failure that you think you've had in your career? Well, if you leave off the last few words, the in your career, and instead say in my okay, life. In your life. In your life. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, there have been a there have been a couple, and I, I will tell you very directly, and you and I have had some pretty intimate conversations that at least one child that was mine is not living and uh, through abortion. And uh, I would give anything in my life, including my life, if I could go back and prevent that. Um, That is the most serious in-depth answer I could possibly give you. There's no greater failing. You talked in earlier in this podcast about protecting people. I was in a position to protect someone and I didn't. Um, I didn't take an active role, you might say, but it was something I could have prevented. If I could go back, I would do anything within my power to prevent that. And, um, uh, there you go. Well, Michael, I really thank you for, for going there because um, the reason I asked that question is I know there's a, a great quote by um, George Orwell that whenever you ask a man to give an account of his life, if he gives a good account of his life, he's a liar because viewed from the inside, all of our lives are nothing but a series of failures. And when you have someone like you who's a successful director or even me with my modest success in my tribe, in my community, my friends or family, where I came from, they could look at me and think I'm a success. And I'm always really, um, it makes me, I don't want that. I want people to understand what a challenge we all have. And um, so for you to 
I wouldn't have never asked you to share that, to be so open about that because people, everyone listening is addled by something like the abortion that you feel a responsibility for. Every one of us has that. And so um, I think there's nothing we can do uh, to help comfort others than to, to share with them how we have failed. And so as a very successful Christian director like you, shares that they feel they they failed to protect their child from an abortion. Um, I think that's that was very beautiful um, for you to share that. And, and, and I want to thank you. And that kind of leads in maybe that it's going to be connected to my last question, which is an awkward opportunity that you do not have to take. Um, but maybe you already you already took it, which is we all feel like me. I use I beat up my brother from the fourth grade to the seventh grade. Every day, you know, and yeah. it's just I think about that every day, just how I was beating up everyone in the neighborhood and my brother got the worst of it. And I just I can't say I'm sorry enough, you know, in my head to my brother, although I don't think I've ever apologized to him personally. Is there anybody that you feel maybe is from in the sixth grade, some kid you punched him in the face and took his lunch or, you know, is there anyone you feel that you owe an apology to that you want to say, I'm sorry? Um, I, I want to say that as you spoke, I beat up my brother from, gosh, I'm talking about from the 10 minutes after he was born to, um, (laughs) to up until, up until he was big enough to kick my butt. I think that happened right about in sometime in high school was the crossover where suddenly I realized he was stronger. He was probably a half inch taller. Uh, he had another 10 or 20 pounds on me uh, and he worked out in the gym and maybe I was the cause of that workout. But, um, uh, but I, uh, uh, we had some difficulties in my family where uh, my brother actually went to a foster home briefly uh, and it had to be very painful for my parents. And, uh, and I didn't realize that, I mean, again, I felt that if I, if I feel, I feel right now, if I went back and I could, uh, could have been more of a brother to him, but the, the starting around, I'm going to say somewhere later in high school, we really got on board with what it was like to be brothers. And now when we talk on the phone uh, and he's, he's in the South Carolina, uh, he's a chemical engineer uh, and he's successful father of four married, a staunch Catholic, a total Christian. Um, uh, When we sign off, we tell each other that we love each other. And so although I may not have issued a formal apology to him, I, I think I actually have once or twice and I, he may have brushed it off, but we are sort of making up for it by uh, hanging out with each other, keeping in touch, golfing together. And uh, I, we never let a phone call go by without saying that we love each other. And, um, Another intimate detail is he had a brief cancer scare, uh, and uh, it was the the mildest form you could possibly have. But that's still, you know, somebody knocking at the door. That's mortality. And I think the greatest uh, – oh, gosh, how should I say it? The greatest uh, fear and uh, 
and uh, depth of despair that I'll have is if if he goes before I do, um, because uh, I love him dearly. Well, that's beautiful, you know, and um, praise God. And in the end, we know that we were just children ourselves, right? And we were caught in the in the turmoil and the swirl and the chaos of our childhood, but that you could come out together stronger and both very successful. Michael, I want to thank you for giving me over an hour. I, pr- I told you it would only be 30 minutes. It's been over an hour, but I promise you we're going to make it up to you because uh, we're going to order um, your DVDs, VODs, uh, Blu-rays. We're all going to go to wraiththemovie.com, but also we're going to put your IMDb in the show notes with links to your other films that I'm going to really encourage people to, to check out. And I just want to personally thank you. You know, I admire you greatly. You're someone I look up to as an inspiration. And thank you for for nurturing your your natural gifts. Thank you for your fortitude, um, your perseverance, and a challenging industry. Uh, to tell stories that um, communicate the truth and beauty and goodness of this life that God has given us. And, uh, you know, I really can't thank you enough. Oh, I can't thank you enough. And I really appreciate uh, our special bond. We have so much in common with the exception of football. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, uh, we love the same people as well. And uh, you're a dear brother. Thank you so much. Aloha. Thank you, Michael. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow me because I am relentless on social media. You can follow me on my personal Facebook page because I like to have a conversation with my friends. You are my friend. I also post a lot on Instagram, a little bit on Twitter, and go to my website, movie2movement.com. That's www.movie2movement.com, and you can find out about my latest film projects. Talk to you next week.